I have to tell you, I we we started the we were receiving the tithes and offerings, and the orchestra and choir were singing. I reached over to take my Bible, and I had the wrong Bible, <laughs> and I didn't have my notes in it. It wasn't that I couldn't speak without my notes. It's just that it would probably run about two hours. So <laughs> my notes keep me focused on, it's about trimming and curbing and, you know, when I was a youngster, my, my mom couldn't get me to read a book. She would sign me up for the book clubs and the books would come and then she would bribe me to, to read. And it, I just was not a reader. Now, I read all the time. I just want to read 24-7. I don't know where you are on the spectrum between not wanting to read at all or wanting to read all the time. But I want to encourage you, you just can't thrive in your Christian walk in following Christ without reading the word and spending time in it. I don't know what it will take for you, but I want to encourage you to cultivate a love for reading and reading the word of God. You have an incentive if you will read 1 Corinthians during the week and uh, ponder it and reflect upon it, mull over a thought, an expression, uh, each, each and every day. Now, take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians. We're continuing in our series, Selfie, Connecting Christ, Culture, and Church with 1 Corinthians. And I want you to note a couple of things before we begin. First of all, there's an expression that Paul uses, do you not know? Does that ring a bell for any of you? Do you not know? How many times do you think Paul uses that expression in his 13 letters? Do you not know? Any hunches? One, 15? 40. That's a, I like those high marks. He uses it 11 times. 11 times in his body of writings. How many times does he use it in 1 Corinthians, do you think? Of those 11 times, 10 times, 10 times, one other time in Romans. How many times of the 11 that he uses in all of his letters and the 10 that he uses in 1 Corinthians does he use in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Yeah, people are starting to count right away. Six times. Six times in chapter 6 alone. So I want you to note that. That tells us something. He wants us to get something. He wanted them to get something. And I think they did know. And he was using it as a kind of a rhetorical device to say, you ought to be figuring this stuff out. Second thing I want you to note, in verse 1, how many of you have the NIV, the New International Version? Okay, I want you especially to note that in verse 1, the word ungodly. Do you see that? Okay, now I want you to look at verse 9 and the word wrongdoer. Do you see that? That's the same word. 
I mean, ungodly and wrongdoer are not the same word, but Paul uses the same word. It's translated one way in verse 1 and another way in verse 9. And the reason I mention that is because the word that Paul uses in verse 1 and verse 9 is a word that he uses... We often, or the other translations, I would translate it unrighteous, unrighteous. The unrighteous in verse 1, the unrighteous in verse 9. How many, how many times do you think Paul uses the word unrighteous, the unrighteous, in his 13 letters? Oh, a slew, would some of you say, how many would say a slew? And how many of you would say a smidgen? (laughs) He uses it three times. Three times in all of his letters, he uses it twice in chapter 6, and in verse 1 and verse 9, and that's important. So contextually, it may be fine to render it ungodly and then wrongdoer, but I think he repeats the word for an important purpose. And that's what I want you to understand. You don't pick that up when they're translated differently. And uh, I'll, I'll pick that up as we go. Let's read chapter 6. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, notice, by the saints, and then if he's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that there are, we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother? And that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me just go back to verse 9 real quick. I just want you to notice adulterers, and then the ESV reads, nor men who practice homosexuality. There are two words there. There is the word that refers to the passive member or participant, 
in a homosexual act or what we call a homosexual act. And then the other word is a word that designates the aggressive member of one who participates in a homosexual act. And they just translate it. Some of you may see that in your marginal note or footnote. And such were some of you. Oh, did I finish verse 10? Nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. It's a Literally, may it never be, but it's kind of like, Lord, have mercy. No. (laughs) Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his or her own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And I want to remind you, every use of the second personal pronoun, you or your, is plural. Do ye not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within ye, whom ye have from God. Ye are not your own, for ye were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, in your body. Last Sunday, we spoke of pride as a poison. Pride isn't confined to 1 Corinthians chapter five, it affects the way we see things, the way we treat one another, and the way we count our friends. Most of all, pride poisons our relationship with God. And that is effective here in chapter six. We have no room for Jesus if we're full of ourselves. And basically, the Corinthians are full of themselves. And there are lots of little details that illustrate that. But just as we think about applying a little bit of last Sunday to this Sunday, last chapter to this chapter, the fact of the matter is is that if Jesus is an afterthought in our lives, then our first thoughts will always feature the self. And pride will get babied by our culture, by our secular world. That's why Paul has holiness on his mind in this chapter. 
He doesn't mention the word holiness, but holiness is a much bigger concept than just the word holy. But there are many little indicators of holiness, holy in this chapter. For example, in verse one, the unrighteous or the NIV ungodly is contrasted with what? The saints. The saints make me think of medieval icons and paintings of people with gold discs or halos. But the saints is a translation of the word holy ones. Holy ones. And it refers to us. Do you realize you are a saint? Paul calls the Corinthians. You, you read the chapter. I know we can't, it just can't all sink in as deeply as it needs to. But even with a cursory reading, we, don't, we would not call these people saints. But Paul does. He even invokes the fact that they're saints to shame them. He says, you are saints. Don't you realize you're not acting like it? Verse 11, here's some more holiness language. You were washed. You were sanctified. What does sanctify mean? Sanctify means make holy. You were washed. You were made holy. You were justified. The word justified means vindicated. Let me just give you a quick picture of this because this comes from court language. In court, you are called to appear. Maybe you're kept in custody for a month on a charge, an allegation. You're brought in before the judge. There's a trial. Your reputation, your righteousness is on the line. You are being called guilty of an offense, of a crime, and you are pleading not guilty. In the trial, you win, and you are what? You are deemed not guilty of the charge. You are vindicated, and you are set free. The cuffs are taken off. The red jumpsuit is left behind. There are no restrictions. You are free to walk out on your own. That's the notion of vindicated. That's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You've been brought before the bar and you have been vindicated, as he says in verse 11, in the name of the Lord Jesus Messiah and through the Holy Spirit. You have been made holy, vindicated. You are not guilty. Why do we confess our sins then? Why do we stop and say, that was, I shouldn't have done that. That's... That's not the better version of me. That's not the Christ-like me. 
Well, we do that because when we confess, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and just to forgive, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It, he is trying to help us understand that when we confess, the word is a word which expresses agreement, in fact, you can find all kinds of, of uh, ancient writings that were dug up on papyri that people used in bills and transactions of sale where the word that, Paul, that John uses in his first letter, 1 John 1, 9, it, we translate it confess, but in those transactions, everyday transactions that were thrown out and dug up by archaeologists, in that very same word means we agree or I concur with the terms of the sale. And when you are confessing, a big piece of that is saying, God, I see it your way, not my way, not the world's way, not, not the secular way, not the way that I used to see it. I see it your way. Your heart beats in my heart, and I, I'm ashamed of what I did. But in that process, before him, that shame disappears. That guilt goes away. And Paul is saying the same thing here. Such were some of you. But you're saints now. You've been washed. You've been made holy. You've been vindicated by none other than the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through the Holy Spirit, which is referring to the two works of God in his Son and the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells us is not just a fictive notion of righteousness when we're so aware of our sin, but there's the actual presence of God in our lives. Holiness indwells us. The holiness of God. Well, there was a sermon in itself, and I hadn't even planned to say that. Holiness is what informs what Paul is writing. What does holiness bring to mind? I'll tell you what it brought to mind for me for many years, do's and don'ts, especially the don'ts, a list of don'ts. And I'll tell you, it just sucks the life out of you, doesn't it? If you're living in a don't world, if you think the Christian life is all about don'ts, don't. <laughs> That was pretty good. <laughs> holiness can, that notion of holiness can become legalism. And legalism sucks the life out of you. Holiness is defined by two words, devotion and separation. Devotion, you could say, is the do part. Separation is the don't part. Yeah, there are boundaries. There are things that are in our best interests. But there's, there's a way I, I've found in my experience that when you do, the don'ts don't seem to matter. And I want to just remind you, Jesus said the greatest do all the don'ts are, are described in one do. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is subsumed and fulfilled in that one do, that two-part do. Scott McKnight uh, has a new book out called Fellowship of Difference, and I've been reading it. He talks uh, about holiness in chapter 12. He talks about the day he was in his yard and he saw a piece of wood with a nail sticking out because he has little ones uh, in the yard. He was concerned that one of them might get hurt, scratched, or scraped. And so he went to look for a hammer to pound that in and he couldn't find a hammer. So he was briefly tempted to take one of his golf clubs and just give it a quick whack, be done with it. Then he realized, even though he was thinking about using his wedge, those were special golf clubs to him. Pretty expensive. In fact, he says, I love those irons. And they're made for golfing. I'd hate to damage a golf club hammering a nail. But he uses that to illustrate holiness, the sense that golf clubs are special and reserved, devoted to golf, to one task, and not used for hammering a nail, illustrates what holiness means in the Bible. God has great purpose for you. Holiness isn't just about do's and don'ts. We'll always be subject to our sinfulness. We're all sinners. I hope that doesn't shock you. You're aware of it, but I just want you to know the person sitting next to you, behind you, and in front front of you is aware of it too. And we need, to, we need to be real about that so that we can be real about what God has, has done in our lives because we're, we're to be together in this, to grow in him, to help each other, to encourage all, you know, that, those words in various places like confess your sins one to another and stuff. That's not idle, but in deep relationship, we have that kind of transparency and care because we love one another in Jesus Christ. We love one another because he first loved us. He teaches us how to love like that. When I was in uh, South San Francisco, and I pastored there for 10 years. I was in the heart of South San Francisco. I could really tell you some stories. There was Christina. Her stomach was so distended, she looked pregnant. 
She looked like she was due any day because she was a full-blown alcoholic. There were three that, uh, I don't know how all these things happened, but three that started coming to the church and we saw them through getting clean of heroin. So we had heroin addicts. We had people who came out of a drug culture of cocaine use. The marvelous thing was to see what God was doing in their lives. Um, Someone said, and I read it this week, we've got to guard the gospel by giving it away. The idea was that when we give it away, people, they come to Jesus Christ. They realize there's another way, a new way, a transforming way, and it changes their lives. When they come into the church, they bring all that world with them, kind of like a, What was the name of the guy in Peanuts that was always grungy and dirty and... What? Okay, well, you know. (laughs) And and it is so life-affirming, Christ-affirming, to see the new life, the new growth, the change, the dramatic change. It happened to those people at the church where I was pastoring. But it didn't all happen in, in one moment, in one prayer. I remember Julie, her husband, Frank, they called him Chewy. I used to go see him at Soledad. Chewy was 6'8". He'd been in the black gorilla family, which is a ruthless family, as are all, I guess, the prison families. He was at San Quentin, but he asked to be put in protective custody. And so they put him at Soledad. His wife, Julie, had a boy named Happy, growing up without a dad. And they called Frank Chewy, which he had disavowed. He always talked about trying to stay and live in the circle of love. I got to stay in the circle of love. Because that's where Christ is. That was his expression. But when you're 6'8", and it's uh, right in the Star Wars era, you call a man of that dimension Chewy, (laughs) short for Chewbunka. But I remember Julie, how she changed. We were having a Bible study upstairs on a Wednesday night, and to hear her pray, just melt your heart. Even though she was praying like, And those of you who know me know how hard this is for me to actually quote. She said, Lord, forgive me for the way I treated my friend. She just so pissed me off. And I know some of us are unsettled by that language in this worship service. 
But I think sometimes that's because we're just not in touch with the power of Christ to engage the world and and see the gospel overpower real people and wrestle with them as they grow in Christ and holiness. She invited Shelley, Julie did, to go see the Chippendales. Can you imagine that? <laughs> but no, wait a minute though. Think about that. How different is her world from, from Shelley and John's world, the world that they have moved into, when she can ask the pastor's wife to go out with some of her friends, which was a big deal. She thought enough of Shelley. She loved Shelley enough to invite Shelley to go with her and her friends to see the Chippendales. She had no conception. And, and think about this, how Shelley could have blasted her. Shelley could have just registered all the self-righteous horror on her face and shamed her and belittled her, which was really coming out of a heart of love. She just needs to grow. She needs to be taught and understand that some things are not healthy or the best thing. They don't cultivate. Some some of us think holiness cultivates self-righteousness and don'ts rather than love. And love actually cultivates holiness. Love never sins. Love never wrongs its neighbor. Paul says in Romans 10, 13, love does no wrong to its neighbor. There you have it. Love cultivates holiness. I dare you to commit your life to loving others in Jesus Christ and you will grow in the wisdom and the precision of how you care and are thoughtful and good and kind and generous and beautiful like Jesus Christ to other people. You'll even find within your power, within your life, the power to absorb insult and wrong and to do good unto others when they have done wrong to you. And tell me if that just doesn't sound like Jesus. It's not rocket science. Love others as God in Christ has loved you. When I came here, by the way, I'm preaching a a, a different sermon. I guess I shouldn't have gotten those notes after all. (laughs) Because I just, I realize I have too much to cover and, and we just don't have the time. Maybe next time that I preach, speak, give the message out of 1 Corinthians 6, we won't have any music. (laughs) We won't have any worship time uh, in the sense of expressing our hearts, and I'll just let you have it. (laughs) No, I would miss that. I need that. When I came here, they gave... Three separate meetings, we met over in the student center and crowds came out, you know, and this was question and answer time to see if the church, if Grace Community wanted John Venema to 
if they discern the call of God and so forth. They called them uh, meetings, but they were grueling interrogations, quite frankly. <laughs> I, c I can remember many of the questions, but the one that sticks out that I think of when I come to this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 is the man stood up and he said, will you let homosexuals come to grace? Just listen to the words again. Will you let homosexuals come to grace? Don't think of a, a building. Don't, don't think the way California does a, a, of an institution. Just listen to the words. Will you let homosexuals come to grace? I said, yes. We let everyone else come. We let you come. We don't set those rules. The gospel does. Jesus Christ does. But that doesn't mean we get to stay the same. You come as you are, but you don't get to stay the same. Let's look at verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were made holy. You were vindicated. Even though on the merits of the case, you deserve to be found guilty. God found you righteous. That's what was at stake. You, I really want you to understand this. When, when you're brought into court, that's what's at stake. That's what's the question. Are you righteous or are you unrighteous? If the, if, if the accusation, if the indictment sticks, then you will be proven unrighteous. But in the court of justice, when God is on the bench, in Jesus Christ, who stands at your side, you are found to be righteous even though you were guilty. In fact, there's this crazy verse in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. It says, God justifies, now you hear that word right, right? He vindicates. God finds just the ungodly. That's the kind of God that you serve. That's the kind of God who says, I bought you with a price. You belong to me now. You're mine. 
so I just close with this thought. What kind of methods does God use? What are his tactics? What's his strategy? It's really an important question. Because if we think holiness is a bunch of don'ts, then you've got his tactics and his strategy all wrong. All wrong, all wrong. At home, you've got it wrong. At school, you've got it wrong. At work, you've got it wrong. If, if you think holiness is a bunch of don'ts, When he says you go before the unrighteous, verse one, and then you go before the unrighteous, verse nine, or don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's talking about people who don't even know Jesus Christ. He says they do these kinds of things, but what's your excuse? God delivered you out of all of that. When Shelly and I were first married, I was 21, she was 20. <clears throat> my, my sister was 13, maybe just turned 14. For a while, while my mother was in the hospital, uh, she was diagnosed with a metastasized brain cancer. They operated, but they couldn't get it all in. And so my grandparents lived with me, and then when we got married, grandparents moved home. Susanna went to live with a wonderful Christian couple. In fact, um, the husband and wife uh, that took in my sister and became legal guardians, they, they served in the high school ministry, and we, we served side by side. Try to get a picture of that. But when mom died and, and Shelly and I were living in the house, and why were we living there? Well, it, we knew everything had to be parceled out and my daughter needed, my sister, excuse me, Lynn, needed to get you know, all the things she wanted and, and then we needed to do the rest and sell the house at a good price. So we were living there just kind of maintaining things, transitioning. We tried to take my sister in, but we were not good enough parents for a, a young adolescent. And so uh, one day I got home from classes and there, I got the mail and brought it in the house and I opened a, an official looking letter. It was from a lawyer threatening to sue Shelley and me for $10,000. I don't know if you can even imagine what that's like for somebody who's just got married that's 21 and trying to do all the right things, and now you're being told that what you're doing is wrong, and who was it that had instigated this? The man and wife that took in my sister, never talked to us, never even came to us and sat down with us and said, hey, we're concerned about these things. We want to make sure your sister gets all that she deserves. And anyway, we liquidated everything as a result. If a strong pastor hadn't stepped in, 
on our behalf, I suppose we would have gotten sued and started off on the streets. But that's the kind of thing Paul's talking about here. He, he's trying to say, why are you doing things the way the world does it? Yeah, you've got your legal rights. It's permissible. You can do it. But why are you doing it that way when the gospel says there's a whole other way? The way of the heart, the way of Jesus Christ, the way that the Holy Spirit's whispering for you to follow, if you'll just have the guts to step out on faith and take a risk and do it Jesus' way and just give yourself a chance to see what kind of crazy wild things God will do when you do it his way. Will you stand with me? Live on the wild side this week. I love you guys. Heard a funny joke. The pastor called a pastor friend. He he was just starting a new church. He said, uh, we've run into some trouble. The, The steering committee to name the church can't decide whether it should be the first united Christian church or the United First Christian Church. Just ponder that for a while. I'm gonna close in prayer. If you wanna pray with us, you know the drill. Come forward, we're here. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your love. It really does inspire us. It just makes us feel the wholeness of your goodness and your love. Your spirit cultivates that in our hearts. May you have preeminence in our lives, our thoughts, that we might glow with your spirit and the beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, God bless you.